0: Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Loving our neighbors, as we've talked about the last several weeks, is core to who we are as a church. Our mission is simple. We exist to know God, which simply means that, again, like in those group contexts that we are learning who God is and we are striving then and learning to be like him. That's what Christians call discipleship. And our mission is also then to make God known, right? We are ambassadors. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. We have been tasked with making God known to our community. That's what Christians call evangelism or missions. And so we exist to know God, to grow, to be like him, discipleship. We exist to make God known, to be on mission within our community. Loving our neighbors and our community is how we make God known together. To love our community well. We talked about this last week, right? Jesus even said, here's my commandment to you, to love the Lord of God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to make that love known to your community, to love your neighbors as yourself. And so if you belong to Restoration Church, this is what you belong to. We talked about this last week. Restoration does not have membership. We have partnership. And there isn't a process for becoming a member The elders wrestled with this actually for a long time. There isn't a process for you becoming a member. You don't need to fill out an application. You don't need to um, have an interview. There's no process for you to become a member. If you want to be a partner of Restoration Church, here's what you have to do. Start partnering with Restoration Church. Those who partner with us, we consider to be partners. Partners. And we determined that a partner of restoration was exhibiting five actions that are necessary in helping us accomplish this mission of making God known, of knowing God and making God known. That a partner would be someone who is praying, not only for the cause of Christ here, for our leadership, but also for our community. Someone who is serving to help the cause of Christ here, someone who is sharing about what God is doing here and sharing the life that they have in Christ. Giving financially to the cause of Christ here so that we can continue the work that we do. And then also growing, being in groups, growing to be like Christ. If you are not already a partner with restoration, we want to invite you into this process. Not only will it ensure that restoration thrives in what we have been called to do, but it will serve you as well. Being consistently part of this body will help you grow into Christ-likeness, which I argue, friends, is the best life. It is actually the life that you were created for. It is the life you were designed for when god had an image of you way back when his image of you was of christ And his desire then for you is to conform into that image Two weeks ago We launched this digital campaign for you to take steps towards partnership This is the last morning that we are going to talk about this. This is coming to an end next week We're talking about be rich and so there's new opportunities to get to plug in in different ways but as of this morning here is what this campaign looks like. You can see there's a few um, gray crosses still left out there. Fifteen people have committed to begin or increase their financial giving. Thank you. First of all, I said, this, I said this last week. We exist off the generosity of people who give financially to the cause of Christ here at Restoration Church. We have 100 units that give regularly to restoration. Ten of those units... 10 of those families give 50% of all of the money that comes into our general fund. Three of those families give 25% of our total funding, which I just think is incredible. And so I need to say this again. Thank you. If you're one of those three, if you're one of those 10, thank you so very much. We literally probably wouldn't exist without your generosity. Thank you. But if you give anything, if you give anything financially to the cause of Christ here, thank you so much. We would not exist without the generosity of these people. So thank you so very much. I know we're in a season of capital giving beyond what we have given to the general fund. A lot of families, including my own, are giving to this capital campaign as well. So thank you. I know we're about to enter into a season of Be Rich. I'm going to ask even more of you next week as you think about how you're going to participate in Be Rich. I know that we ask a lot of this body. And I want to thank you because God has been so faithful through you to meet the needs of Restoration Church. Thank you so very much. In addition to those who have begun um, giving, seven people have be, have committed to begin serving. We are going to be exp- experimenting with a second service in the new year. Um, it's, it may not be on Sunday morning. It may be a, an, an alternative time. We're still um, wrestling with that and talking about the ins and outs of that. But the reality is we need more RC Kids volunteers, simply put, but also hospitality, and there are so many other ways to get involved. Trunk or Treat needs volunteers. We have Fallsington Day coming up um, in two weeks. That needs volunteers. So we have a hundred different ways for you to volunteer to get involved here at Restoration Church. And I'll say this again, like a lot of us go to jobs that pay us money, but they don't really scratch the itch of our passion. And friends, I would just want to say right now that there are a lot of opportunities right here at Restoration Church to scratch that itch of your passion. You may you may sit at a desk all day, but your heart like is for the garden. You just want to be working in the earth. Wow! Volunteer with the garden, like help us help us make that even beyond the incredible ministry that it already is. So many ways to serve here to get you involved. Be rich is coming up. There are going to be so many opportunities for you to just delve into the passion that you have and to serve in a way that's going to bring you to life. And maybe in a way that that your your 9-to-5 job isn't able to do throughout the week. In addition to that, 15 people have committed to pray for our community. We have these cards. I would encourage you to take these cards. Um, simply put, these are supposed to represent your neighbors, these blank spaces. I took a few of these cards. These are these are actually the eight houses around my house. These are my, the people that I'm praying for daily. I also have another card that's um, Luke's baseball team. It's the parents on Luke's baseball team. And after today, when I don't need this as an example anymore, I'm going to take this and put it on my dashboard, and I'm going to be praying for these people as I drive drive around and be reminded to pray for my community. And so these cards available at both entrances, I'd encourage you to take one or two or three, however, however many you need. Just as a reminder to pray for you community. I probably will reference this again throughout Be Rich as well as we need to be praying for our community. And then six people have committed to inviting. And you don't have to like invite literally, but there are passive ways to invite as well. We have road signs in the back if you want to put one of those in your yard, restoration t-shirts, decals on your car, take a bunch of pens, hand them out to your servers as you sit down the restaurants. A lot of ways to passively invite people to Restoration Church, but certainly we do encourage you to be an inviter as well, because you ought to be compelled by the love of God for you to be an ambassador and reconciler of Christ. Paul wrote to the Romans that how will they know? How will the world know if we don't tell them? And so we have responsibilities to be in our community for our community, telling them about what Christ has done for us. We'll talk more about it in just a second. And then nine have chosen to um, be actively engaged in communities. Like um, Chris and I had mentioned, there are a lot of different ways to grow in community here. A lot of them are open right now. Starting point story one, story two. There's a beta group for story three if you've been through the first two. Um, house groups, discover your design. There's just so many different ways. I'd really encourage you to go to our website, find a study that suits you or that works with your schedule right now. Get plugged in into Community Friends. You will not regret it. There is a QR code right now. If you would like to jump in on this campaign, if you haven't done so yet, if you're ready to commit to be a partner of Restoration Church, this is the way to do it. We'll put this up after the service as well for your um, accessibility there. All right. So we are committed to making God known within our community. That is how we talk about loving our neighbors. We as a corporate entity are committed to making God known with our our community. There is one thing, I think, within our community, within the landscape of America in general for the most part, that makes this really hard, though. Take a look at this picture. I, I, I threw this up on social media. This is some section in Levittown. I don't know what it is originally put. Take a look at this picture. What do you find interesting about this. Anything that's missing or lacking in this picture. No fences. Levittown wasn't built with fences. It might have been illegal. Okay. Well, hey, it's not anymore. All right. All I got to say, not illegal anymore. There are no fences. Levittown was constructed with without fenced yards, but there is rarely a house today that does not have a fenced yard in Levittown. Maybe some of you can remember when fences began popping up. I don't know when they became legal, but at some point, at some point, neighbors are like, you know what? I don't want to keep looking at my neighbor's crappy backyard. I want to put a fence up. Can you imagine that first conversation that took place? Hey, George, what are you doing over there? I'm putting a fence up. Oh, why, why, why are you doing that? You know what? Because your backyard is trash. And I don't want to see your backyard anymore. And so I'm going to put a fence up. I don't want your dog keep crapping over in, in my yard, right? I, I, I don't want that anymore. And so I'm going to put a fence, a dividing line that's going to separate my property. You know, I feel like every time I mow my lawn, I, I'm mowing a few feet into your fence. And I just know I don't want that energy anymore. Can you just imagine that first conversation when George, whoever it may be, started putting a fence up? It probably felt a little offensive a little bit. It probably felt a little awkward. All of a sudden, you know, in the late 1950s or whenever they became legal, people began constructing these dividing walls, this separation. And sure, we're able to transcend them from time to time, but the dream, I think, of a suburban America made a culture of separation, the distance far wider than the 20 feet between houses. Offense is a physical boundary. It's an obstacle to our neighbor, but it's also symbolic of neighborly relationships in America. Just think of it for a moment. You don't need to raise a hand. You don't need to mention how many of you know your neighbors. And I don't mean like know their names. I mean like how many of you know your neighbors, have relationship with your neighbors? I can see a few hands popping up. That's great. Um, I I feel like I do as well. But like the vast majority of people can't even tell you the names of the people who live around their house, let alone have a relationship. And the fence says, you're over there and I'm over here. You're on that side, I'm on this side, and let's just be honest, sometimes it's a lot of work to cross the fence. Sometimes it's a lot of work to embrace whoever might be over there, and enough of us have said this, we're now over 50% of the households, again, don't even know the names of the people who live on the other side of the fence. You're over there, and over there seems really far away. And who knows what the people are like over there. And like, man, they're kind of into some weird things. I can smell that they're in some weird things, right? It looks like they're into some weird things. I see the people who walk up to that house and like, we just make these assumptions and these excuses. We talked about this last week. These excuses is, I don't know. I I don't, the fence is enough of a separation. I don't need to go meet my neighbors. They seem kind of odd. They seem kind of weird. It would take a lot of effort. Let's just stay over here where it's safe and where it's comfortable but what might happen if we didn't let the that side this side excuse separate us from loving our neighbors how might a household change how might a neighborhood change how might their existence upon this planet change if we were just willing to cross the fence how might our neighborhood change In Mark chapter 4, if you have your scripture with us, with you this morning, you're welcome. I I encourage you now to take it out. Mark chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Text will be on the screen if you don't have it with you. That's fine. After Jesus spends a day teaching on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, he tells his disciples this. Let's go over to the other side. Let's go over to the other side. There are a lot of reasons that typical Israelites made absolutely no effort to ever go to the other side of the lake, he's referring to the Sea of Galilee, by the way, there were a lot of excuses, a lot of reasons why they never would ever go to the other side of the lake. There was this geographical border that kept them separated, the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River that flowed south from there. But the other side of the lake was the region of the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities, this was enemy territory, according to the, the Israelites. That's where the pagans lived. You know, They knew exactly what kind of stuff they were into on the other side of the lake. This is where the seven tribes of Canaan settled after being expelled from the promised land by the Israelites roughly 1,200 years prior to this conversation Jesus is having. This region is filled with pagan temples featuring exaltations of violence and sexual expressions and greed and everything that Israel was a knot. Everything that Israel was opposed to, the other side, man, they glorified it. They celebrated it. The pig, the most unclean animal in Israel, and an animal the Israelites were just disgusted by. They would never even dream of coming close to an animal. The pig was sacred over on the other side. It was used in worship on the other side. The Jews believed the other side was where Satan lived. It was dark, it was evil, it was oppressive, it was demonic. That's how they characterized their neighbors. That's what the people on the other side were like. And over there on the other side was where Rome had their regional outpost. A legion of 6,000 Roman soldiers lived there, all wearing the emblem of the Boris head upon their shoulders. Nobody ever went over to the other side. Those people are weird. Those people are strange. I don't want to get to know them. They're on the other side. But Jesus one day said, hey guys, let's go over to the other side. It's kind of like Jesus is saying this, let's stop looking at their weird practices and therefore making excuses as to why we can't go over there and love on them. When you begin to categorize people and give them superficial, unfair identities, then you think they're justified in treating people on the other side how you think people on the other side deserve to be treated. We see this in their dress. We make assumptions. We see this with the people who frequent their homes. We make assumptions. We see this in the way they keep their lawn. We make assumptions. We see this in the time they go to bed. We make assumptions. We see this as we smell things coming from their garage. We make assumptions. We see what's in their trash. We make assumptions. We make excuses. We make justifications as to why we don't need to go over and love the people on the other side. But what? Might happen if we just saw the other people on the other side as human What would happen if we saw them as people in need of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of jesus just as we are Jesus says let's hop in the boat and let's find out And so jesus says let's go over to the other side when they landed on the other side There was a man there to greet him and they probably they all probably looked at this man They're like this is exactly why we didn't come over here jesus this man right here just, you know, it gives credibility to every single assumption and justification that we had. This is exactly why we did not come over here, Jesus. There was a man there to greet him. I probably felt so odd because everywhere Jesus went, there were massive crowds that gathered on the seashore as he arrived to meet him. But here, there is just one man greeting him. And a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is why we didn't want to come over here, Jesus. This is what we expected, and this is exactly what we found out. This is why we did not want to come over to the other side. He was deranged, tormented, tomb-dwelling, self-mutilating demoniac, so disruptive that he had been thrown out of his own community. No one wanted him anymore. No one wanted to put up with him. No one wanted to help him. They were sick and tired of his antics and his disruptions, so they not only abandoned him to the tombs, they chained him. To the tombs, so that he could not come back into their community. He fell on his knees before Jesus and he asked, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. Well, what is your name? Jesus asked. Legion, for we are many. Legion is a wo- loaded word in this term. I already referenced how 6,000 Roman soldiers, a legion of 6,000 Roman soldiers lived in this area. It's a word for the Jews that spoke of foreign enemies. Beyond this, the spirits within the crazed demoniac, they begged Jesus, send us out among the pigs. Allow us to go into the pigs as Jesus asked them what to do with them. Send us among the pigs. All these pigs then rushed down the hillside into their own destruction as they jump off the cliff into the sea. Any Israelite would have quickly remembered a story roughly 200 years prior to this event. When the Romans, the Roman legion um, of their day had forced Jews to eat the flesh of pigs, and when the Jewish people refused to, when they said no, they were all slaughtered. To the Jews, the pig was a symbol of Roman power. And the pigs, along with the legion, they were just destroyed. So to an onlooker, seeing Jesus and his band of 12 Jews destroying the legion and the pigs, they would have thought, he's coming to wage war. Right, This is revenge on what the Romans had done. This is revenge on what we had done to the Jews prior. They were afraid of Jesus. Jesus is coming to wage war. So the people's response is fascinating. We're told that those tending the pigs ran off and told everyone what had happened. And when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. Sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, they were afraid. They looked at this restored life in the face, and they said, this is too disruptive. It's too disruptive. This seems foreign to us and we're afraid. They didn't respond to this miracle like the people in Galilee whatever. Right? The people in Galilee on the Jewish side of the lake, they would have responded to this miracle by what grabbing all of their sick people, all of their mute and deaf, everybody who was lame, they would have brought them on mats to see Jesus. No. That's not what you get on the other side of the lake. They looked at Jesus and they said, "No, we don't want this. This is too disruptive. This is unfamiliar. We're scared. We don't like it. Why? Because, because Jesus had power, but he wasn't one of them. They began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Jesus, get out of here. We, we, don't, we don't want you here anymore. This guy has power, but he's not one of us. And so it's afraid. We're afraid of him, right? It's 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 disruptive to our way of life. He was on the other side. And he's come over to our side, and maybe he's going to use his power to hurt us. At the very least, you know, this, this would be destructive to everything they know of life. And so for, for most of them, it's a frightening thing. It's not that it's painful. It's just different. And isn't that what often keeps us away from trusting fully in Christ? It's not that it's going to be painful. It's just going to be different. It's going to, it's going to mess up my routines. It's going to mess up what I know is normal. It's going to mess up my day-to-day. And so they didn't like it. And so they asked Jesus to leave. They pleaded with Jesus to leave their reason. So Jesus leaves. The once demon-possessed man wants to come too, but Jesus did not let him. He rather said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And so you have this guy who was crazy, right? He was demon-possessed, literally, so disruptive that they chained him to the tombs of all places, excommunicated from community, get out of here, you're too disruptive. He's now in his right mind. He's been healed. And now he's telling everybody about what Jesus has done for him. He goes back to his hometown, and everyone is immediately like, aren't you that crazy guy that we chained among the tombs? The last time I saw you, you were cutting yourself. With the shards of pottery, you were you were pulling out your hair, you were screaming. But you know what? You seem all right now. What happened? They were amazed. What happened? Well, what happened? Well, let me tell you a story about what happened. I used to have uncontrollable doubt about my self-worth. I used to have uncontrollable doubt about my self-worth. I would hear voices that said, I wasn't good enough. And no one ever loved me and I wasn't smart and that I would never accomplish anything meaningful and I was a waste of time and I had nothing to contribute to my family or my society or my community or my household and I was just good for nothing loser. And I created this, this anger in me which was just bubbling up and boiling up inside of me ready to spill out on everybody and I just lashed out and I was angry at the world. And at everybody that I ever came in contact with. And it turned into numbness. And all I wanted to do was feel again. And so, I don't know, I began to cut myself. And I hated life. But then last night, last night this guy got off this boat. And he started walking up towards me and everything began to change. This man looked at me, the deepest recesses of my mind and my heart and my soul All the stuff, all the crap that I held on to and defined myself by, I, I, I made a home within my heart of all of the anger and the words and the lies that people had spoken into me, and I just let it sit there, heavy upon my soul. And this guy who got off this boat looked deep into me, and he just took it all and threw it all away, and he just put it all to death. And all the to all, all the all the townsfolk, you know, hear, hearing the story, they're, they're probably like, "Really? You know what? If I'm honest, in my more honest moments, I have those same doubts. When I'm honest, in my most honest moments, I have those same feelings. What did this man do? And just like this spark in a forest, right? The power of mercy and grace and testimonials." God started this wildfire that just like burned through the whole region. And the story continues with Jesus getting into the boat and he goes back to the region of Galilee. And of course, when he gets off the boat in the region of Galilee, he's met by this giant crowd of people who want him to heal their sick. He begins to feed the multitudes. And a short time later, Jesus returns to the Decapolis. The same region that he was told by the pig herders to leave, but also the same region that Jesus left one person who he had transformed, one life that he had changed. He had left one person to go and share his story of redemption, share his story of renewal, share his story of reconciliation, of hope, of grace, of forgiveness. Go share your story. He left one person to share his story in a region that did not know of the hope of Christ. Remember that the last time he was there, nobody cared. Nobody was there to meet him on the shores of the banks of the river. Nobody cared that Jesus was there. No one flocked on the shore to listen to his teaching or to receive healing, but they told him to go away. And so we pick up at verse 31 of chapter 7, a few chapters later. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. This is on the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, so he's, he's on the Mediterranean coastline at this point. But he's going down then to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So he's crossing the sea again. He's going down into the same region that he had met this demoniac several months earlier. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And so there are a few people now who have heard of Jesus and what he could do. And they brought to him a mute and a deaf man. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on them. And the people, we're told, were overwhelmed with amazement by what Jesus had done to heal this man. And large crowds were gathered around him. Jesus had not been back in this region at all since he left one man to tell his story. The man did so 6 months later, roughly perhaps when Jesus returns, he met he is met with a crowd of people. Crowds began to gather around him, bringing their sick to to be in listening to his teaching, right? To be under the the provision of his teaching. They brought their sick, their deaf, their lame into this region. He left one man, one man to tell his friends about what God had done for him. And he's met with these crowds now who are running through the region, screaming his name, telling everyone that they know to come to bring their sick to get healed by this man. How did this crowd know of who Jesus is? How did this crowd know that Jesus could heal people? How did this crowd know that Jesus could transform lives? How did this crowd know that Jesus was a reconciler and a healer and one who would forgive and give worth and meaning and purpose to people who had none? How did this crowd know that Jesus would renew them? And then they were so eager to meet Jesus. Well, one man stood up at dinner one night and told his family about how he used to be imprisoned with guilt and regret and condemnation, but then he met Jesus And now he's free. One person experienced the mercy of God as they recognized they have been forgiven of their sin. And now they have a story to tell. God has done such a good work in my life. I have been redeemed. I have been restored. I have been renewed. Let me tell you about that. Were you selfish? But convicted to love? Have you ever been angry, but in Jesus you found stillness? Have you ever been a busybody, but in Jesus you discovered purpose and margin for your day and your life? Have you been impatient, but with Jesus you found kindness? Have you been ridden with guilt, but in Jesus you found freedom from your condemnation? Were you full of anxiety, but in Jesus you found peace? Did you have resentment, but in Jesus you found contentment? Were you addicted to drugs or alcohol or porn, but in Jesus you found wholeness? Were you in the recesses of despair, but in Jesus you found hope? Was your mind broken by past failures, but in Jesus you found healing? Were you haunted by other people's voices spoken over you, but... Have found unconditional love in Jesus Christ? Were you a sinner, but in Jesus have found forgiveness? How is it that this whole region of pagan Gentiles approach Jesus to find healing and forgiveness and restoration when he lands upon their shores? Someone told them a story of how God had been merciful. And when they encountered someone depressed or angry or guilt-ridden or feeling the imprisonment of sin, they told them a story of what God had done in their life to free them of that. And the whole world, as they knew it, began to change. Because one man shared his story. Because one one day Jesus said, hey, you know what, let's go over to the other side. They crossed that physical boundary line, that marker that divided them. Let's stop looking at those people as those people with their weird habits and their temperaments and traditions. And let's see them as humans needing forgiveness and wanting to embrace love incarnate. Let's go over to them and love on them with physical actions and spiritual healing. Let's see what happens. Let's just, let's just go over there and treat them as humans and begin to hear their story and share our story in the process. Let's just go over there. Let's cross over the fence and begin to love our neighbors and let's just see what happens. And the underlying message of this all is try it. Because you won't know how their life will change unless you try it. And if we don't, if we choose not to, then don't expect anything to change in their life, in their communities. Don't expect anything to be different about your neighborhoods or your neighborly relationship. Don't expect healing or restoration or reconciliation for them or for their family. Don't expect justice to thrive in your community or kindness to win or our neighbors to be patient with us or anger to subside in a selfish world. If we are not willing to teach the world love, then we should not expect the world to be any different than selfish. We shouldn't complain about a selfish world if we're not willing to teach it love. God has entrusted us with the power of renewal. One thing that I believe is true of every single person is that every single person is desperately longing for renewal. I believe that's true of everybody. And we know this because spouses, they do cheat on one another and resent one another and fight and curse at one another and walk out. And we know this because parents do abuse their children. And children disrespect their parents. And we know this because people do cry when they're hurt and they do feel bad when they're picked on and we do mourn when loved ones die and we do fear death and we're enraged at wickedness when we see it in the news and when we see it within our own communities. We weep over the destruction of natural disasters and we're broken for those who are trapped in addiction and we know deep within us that the world isn't right. Every single person recognizes this. And when we recognize that the world isn't right, then if we have eyes to see, we might just recognize that we're not right. And that we need healing and we need restoration as well. And in light of all of this, we still try to find peace and explanation as to why. We still try religion. We still try to drink it away. We still try to drug it away. We still try to fix things ourselves, to settle the burden within our souls and be released from this anxiety and this stress and this guilt Everyone is searching for a solution to the problem that they know they have. We talk about this all the time. Everybody is searching for a solution to the problem they know they have. And every single attempt that they're trying will fail if it is not Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he offers. We are holding the solution in our hands to the problem that they are trying to fix, my friends. It would be unloving of us to keep it to ourselves. You know, back in the 1800s, Edward Kimbrell was a Sunday school teacher in Boston It was his ambition that every boy that he taught understood the gospel and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, One student who struggled through life, his dad had died at an early age. His mother raised him Unitarian from inside a strict boarding school. And Edward Kimbrell admitted that when he first met this young man, his mind was the darkest mind that he had ever seen. It was just tormented like this demon-possessed man, right? His mind was just dark. His heart was dark. And so one day, Edward Kimball went to the shoe store where this young man worked and explained the gospel to him, and the man accepted, this young man accepted the gospel there that day in the shoe store. That man's name, that little boy's name, was Dwight L. Moody. Anybody know that name? Ever heard the name Dwight L. Moody? He grew to become an evangelist. Dwight L. Moody then shared the gospel with a young man named Wilbur Chapman, who also went on to become an evangelist. And one Sunday, a professional baseball player named Billy Sunday had the day off, and he attended one of Wilbur Chapman's services, church services. At this service, he heard the gospel, he embraced the gospel, he quit baseball, professional baseball that day, in order to join Wilbur Chapman's evangelistic team. There was this young man in the crowd one day during one of Billy Sunday's meetings, one of his church services, Named Mordecai Ham, who heard the gospel, he accepted it and he began his own evangelistic tours as well. Mordecai, he would rent hearses and he would drive them around town as an illustration, a physical illustration that death is coming upon all of us. So you better get your right, stuff together before you die. He would use it as a way to advertise his meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina. A group of young men leaving a brothel one day saw the hearse and thought it would be funny to attend and disrupt the meetings, right? They attended as a prank. They wanted to make a, 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 a bunch of chaos and disrupt one of the meetings to cause a lot of distraction. One of those young men, his name was Billy Graham. At that meeting, he heard the gospel, he accepted it, and had, he began his life as an evangelist. And Billy Graham's preaching journey, he preached to over 2.2 billion people. Because of Billy Graham, he heard, he, the 2.2 billion people heard of the gospel, so many of them for the first time. I remember as a little boy at the Metrodome in Minnesota, I went to a Billy Graham crusade. Probably one of the very first times I heard the gospel. We have no idea how the dominoes are going to fall, friends. You have no idea what lies in the balance when you tell your neighbor about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you share with a coworker or a family member or your own children, the people who have been entrusted to you, you have no idea how the dominoes are going to fall and how the world is going to be changed by one person who hears the gospel. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to sing one final song as we conclude our time together. I want you to think about life prior to meeting Jesus for just a minute. What was your life prior to meeting Jesus? What was it like? And if you're not at that point where you can confidently say you've met Jesus, then ask yourself, what is life like right now? Is it anxious or sorrowful or painful or sad or lonely? Is it apathetic? What is your life like now? What was life like prior to meeting Jesus? And some of you may be thinking, well, I've met Jesus and I still feel that way. And that's oftentimes true. Meeting Jesus is not a quick fix to your solution, friends. It is a journey that you go on towards restoration and towards healing. Every life is different and therefore every journey to him and with Jesus is going to be different as well. But after you've thought about that for a minute, what was life like prior to meeting Jesus, then I want you to think about this. Who told me? Who told me about Jesus? Who introduced me to him? I would love to, to hear the, these stories sometime. I think it would be so fascinating and encouraging to hear these stories. Who told you? Was it your mom or an aunt? Was it a Sunday school teacher, a VBS leader? Who told you about Jesus? Who brought you to the point Where you could learn more about him who shared with you the experience that they were having so that you could have an experience with jesus Who told you about jesus and what he had done in them so that he could do something in you And then ask how have I shared it? How have I continued the story? What fences are there between me and the people around me that block me from sharing and making it really easy? Excuses justifications to not tell my loved ones about Jesus. We want to help you with this. We want to help you love your neighbors well. We want to help you cross fences. We are, we're designing a series of um, activities that you can do with your own community that will help bridge the gap between you and your community. One of them is a coffee shop that we're starting called The Bridge Coffee and Community. That's I, I, mean, I have so many updates for you at a different time. It's getting there, friends. Flooring was laid as of yesterday. Flooring is in, so we're getting there. Another couple months. But we're also creating a number of just like simple activities that you might already do that would be an easy invite to your community. We have a few of these. They're going to be door hangers available to you. And we're going to create a number of these activities. And if you have neighbors, you know, the five houses around you, you have a fire pit one night, man, just put a door door hanger on their door saying, hey, come and join me around the fire pit Friday night at seven o'clock. You know, we're just going to hang out. No agenda. We're just going to hear stories and get to know each other. We have a number of other things that we're creating along with this, but these are going to be available to you in the coming weeks so that you can begin to bridge the gap, to stop making excuses as to why you can't jump over that fence and meet the people in your community, my friends. At the very least, we need to be praying for our community. Take this with you. I am serious. We need to be a church praying for our community. This will be the first step. And maybe not only a changed life, but a changed world. Can you think what would have happened if... if uh, if that line above Billy Graham stopped with any one of them. We have no idea what would happen, friends, if we can be a reconciler and ambassador towards one person in our community. Let's be serious about loving our neighbors well.